And we're going to be focusing on mainly 1 Corinthians 13, 8 through 12, but we'll start reading in 12, 27 and go all the way through 14, 1 so that we have context. Uh, uh, I should mention, this is the first of several messages about what are called the spiritual gifts. That is, specific ways that the Spirit of God empowers His people for the Christian life. And the primary passage that speaks about them is 1 Corinthians 12 to 14. So today, our focus is going to be to answer the question about whether or not all of the spiritual gifts that are listed for us in Scripture are still available to us. That's the question we're going to ask and answer. Are all the gifts still for today? So let me read 1 Corinthians 12, starting 27, and go all the way to 14.1, and then we'll pray. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Let's pray. We, we invite you, Lord, to come and, and open our hearts to this text. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who dies on the cross to forgive our sins, that we might know you, that we might be totally accepted 
and that we might receive grace from you day by day for our lives. We thank you that that's your posture to us. We thank you that you have gifts for us, that you love us, that you're for us. And would you help us to feel that today? And would you also open our eyes to all that you do intend to give? We ask you to do that for the glory of Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray, amen. Uh, About 17 years ago, I had a meeting with a man in our church in Minnesota. He was very upset with me and with the other elders because we had begun teaching that all the gifts of the Spirit are for today, including the more controversial ones like speaking in tongues and prophecy. So he wanted to confront me on that. For background, you need to know that about a year before that, we had replanted our church with an infusion of about 100 people from another church. The new people were largely what we would call continuationists, meaning that they believed that all the spiritual gifts are still for today, including tongues and prophecy. The people from our original church were mostly what we would call cessationists, They believed that prophecy in tongues in particular had ceased. So on an elder retreat, I remember making the fateful decision that we were going to teach on this. We thought that by working through the scriptures um, and showing what they say, that everyone would see that the scriptures teach the gifts are still for today, and then we would all be on the same page moving forward. Well, that's not how it turned out. Many of the cessationists became alarmed. They thought we were becoming heretical. We found ourselves in the middle of a church split, which eventually resulted in about one-third of the people leaving, mostly people from the original church. Somewhere in the middle of that crisis, I met with this church member, who was among the number who would end up leaving. And disappointed and angry, he leaned over and said, why couldn't you have just left it alone? Why did you have to teach on this? That really made me think. As we began to lose many long-time friends, I had to ask myself, why did we teach on this? Was it really worth it? Why couldn't we have just left it alone? I thought a lot about it then. And I've been thinking a lot about it since, especially in preparing this message. I believe it was and is worth teaching on for two reasons. For one, it's because I'm persuaded that the Bible teaches that the gifts are for today. And if that is what God says, then I have a duty to teach it. We can't intentionally skip parts of the Bible because they make us uncomfortable or could get us into trouble or because you might lose friends over it. We have the obligation to preach the whole counsel of God. All that he has written for us is worthy of our attention 
and for our instruction. So that's number, reason number one. And that was probably my main reason for sticking with it back then. I couldn't get away from the fact that, but the Bible says this. But I have another reason that's become more important to me than it did before. It's because of what the spiritual gifts are. They are gifts from God to us that have been purchased by Jesus Christ on the cross. They are gifts from God to us that are, they are charismata, that's the Greek word behind the gift. It means grace, gifts. They are ways that we experience firsthand the grace of God in our lives. Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, 7, It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. He said that about the Spirit. He said, I must go away. I must be crucified on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. And when I do that, your sins will be forgiven. God will fully accept you, and he will come to dwell with you through faith. I will send the Spirit. That's to your advantage. And when the Spirit comes, so also comes his gifts. God has given you encouragements, empowerments, for life. This is how you will experience God's presence and how you get what you need to carry out the mission of building the church from every people and nation. So why is it worth it to teach on these things? It's because the gifts are what Jesus died to give us. This is how we live in the good of the gospel. But are all of the gifts listed in Scripture still available today? That's the big question. That's where people divide into different camps. So that's the question that I hope to answer this morning. I don't think anything I will say is going to come as a surprise to you if you're a member of the church. Because we teach this in our membership class. We've talked about this in various sermons over the years. So you probably already would say yes to the sermon title, The Gifts Are For Today, but it's possible to believe in these things, but not earnestly desire those spiritual gifts to actually be present, to actually be practiced. And so maybe our convictions need to be strengthened on this so that we can earnestly desire if we don't. I hope they will be. But there's others, perhaps newer to the church, maybe visiting for the first time. And you may hear some things that are different from what you've believed or have, have heard. And we welcome you where you are, <laughs> if that's you. You don't have to believe what I say. But I hope that you will believe what God says, and I hope that you will be persuaded by God's word on this. Here's our path for the rest of the message. First, I'm going to lay out the biblical case for the continuation of all the spiritual gifts. And then I'll answer some of the main objections that have been raised against that view. And then we'll close with application. What must we do with this teaching if, in fact, the gifts are for today? So, let's start with the biblical case. 
for the continuation of all the spiritual gifts. We'll look specifically at verses 8 to 12 in chapter 13 because that actually answers the question about when they cease. Paul actually deals directly with that issue in the context of 12 to 14. So let's start by looking at the context. We began in chapter 12 at verse 27, and Paul lists there several of the gifts that God has given to the church. Some of them he lists as people. He says the prophets, the teachers, etc., the apostles. So there's people that are gifts who have been endowed with certain abilities. Some of them he talks about as just the abilities or special endowments for a particular occasion. He mentions miracles and healing, helping, administrating in various kinds of tongues. That's not a complete list of all the spiritual gifts, either in 1 Corinthians or in other places in the Bible. There are more gifts than this. But these are mentioned there because Paul's addressing the subject of spiritual gifts in general because the Corinthians were mishandling some of them. And so these three chapters are about his bringing them from their misuse of certain gifts into a proper use. And so he's putting it all in its big context. But the spiritual gifts in general is the subject. If I can break the three chapters down, it looks like this. In chapter 12, Paul corrects the idea that some gifts, like speaking in tongues, are more spiritual than others, like wisdom. He's correcting that idea. So he says in 12.11, all these are empowered by the one and the same Spirit. doesn't matter if it's administration or apostle, one Spirit is behind all of that. So that's a correction. Then chapter 13 is about the big picture, which is that whatever your gift is, it has to be used in the context of love, or it defeats the purpose of the gifts. So he says in 13, 1 to 3, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal if I don't have love. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, but have not love, I gain nothing. If love isn't your aim, then you might as well not have any gifts at all. That's his point in chapter 13. And then chapter 14 is specific teaching on how to use the gifts of tongue and pro- tongues and prophecy in a loving way because these are the gifts that they were misusing. He tells them in 14.12, Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And then he goes on at length to talk about how you use these particular gifts in a church setting. So that's the wider context in which we have 13, 8 to 12, which is the passage that directly answers the question, when will the gifts cease? And the reason Paul brings the issue uh, into discussion is because it's part of the argument about why love transcends any individual gift in importance. So listen again to verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. What he's saying there is that love is more fundamental to the Christian life than any other spiritual gift because love never ends, but spiritual gifts like prophecy, like tongues, like the utterance of knowledge, they will end. 
Love is a fundamental quality that originates in God the Father, was displayed in God the Son as he walked the earth, and is worked into our lives by God the Holy Spirit. The first fruit of the Spirit listed in Galatians 5.22 is love. Love is the distinguishing mark of the genuine Christian. Jesus said in John 13.35, by, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So the reason that love never ends is because it's fundamental to becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Both now and forever. <laughs> But not so the spiritual gifts. They are not fundamental to who we are. They are gifts temporarily given to promote spiritual growth and to advance the mission of building the church. And there will come a day when those functions will no longer be necessary. There is a time when they will come to an end. So when is that time? Paul tells us, with three descriptions of that time. So here's the first one. It is when the perfect comes. It is when the perfect comes. Verses 9 and 10. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. In other words, let's use the utterance of knowledge and prophecy as examples. Any spirit-given knowledge or any spirit-given prophetic word that we deliver to someone else is partial in nature. That is to say, we don't have complete information from God, and we don't fully understand all that he does reveal to us. What comes through our brains and out of our mouths is partly God's perfection and partly our imperfection. For example, if someone comes to the prophecy mic on a Sunday morning, we don't encourage them to say, thus says the Lord, as if everything that I say next is God's very words, complete, pure, authoritative we don't encourage that. Instead, we encourage people to say something like, I have an impression that God wants to encourage the moms in the room today because they feel like they're failing as parents. And then here's a word picture that he gave me. That's partial. That's incomplete. It's still helpful. Its origin is still the Lord. But there's a mixture in there of his perfection and our imperfection. All the spiritual gifts are like that to some degree. My gift of teaching is partial. Even as I'm laboring to put together a sermon, I know I'm leaving out tons of stuff that probably could be important to say. And I know that everything that I will say is probably missing something that would have added to make that better. I don't know everything that I ought to teach. My teaching is partial. The gift of administration is partial. There are some people who are just so fantastic at figuring out how to pull off things, how to take an idea and make it reality. <laughs> all the details of children's ministry, all the details of uh, building a building, all the details of, of 
forming everybody's schedules together and making things happen. That's what administrators do. But you know what? Even administrators sometimes miss it. Sometimes their plans fail. Sometimes they didn't have all the information they needed. All of our gifts are partial, though they are spiritual, though they are originating God. So when Paul says, when the perfect comes, the partial will, be, will pass away, he's saying there is coming sometime in the future, as of Paul's writing, this day when the partial benefit of all the gifts is going to pass away. Something perfect is coming. It's going to render these other partial things no longer necessary. Or maybe we should say it will be the complete fulfillment of all that they were pointing to. Now, before we define what the perfect thing is, let's, let's add to it the other things that Paul says about that time. The second description is this. It's a time of maturity. It's a time of maturity. Verse 11 When I was a child, I spoke like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Now that's a setup for verse 12, but it stands alone as an analogy of this time when the partial will pass away. It will be like when a child grows up. When you're little, your life experience is limited. You haven't acquired a lot of wisdom. Your brain is still developing. There's a certain naivete about how the world works. You may not understand why mom says, you can't have a cell phone yet, or the internet, or you can't spend the night over at that person's house. You, as a child, you might not understand why, why, why can't I do those things? And the mom might have to say one day, well, You're too young for me to explain that to you right now. When you're older, you'll understand. Paul's saying the time when the perfect comes is going to be like that. Right now, your thoughts, your reasoning are immature. They're not fully formed. But a time is coming when they will be mature, when you will get it. when your capacity to understand is going to be enlarged and you will see things very differently. When the perfect comes, it will be like growing up to maturity. Here's the third thing that describes that day. It's when we will see Jesus face to face. Verse 12. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. This completes the point of the childhood analogy. Like a child who knows partially, whose mind isn't yet ready to handle the big picture, there comes a time when he or she shall know fully, when maturity arrives, when there's a depth of knowledge that wasn't possible before. In fact, Paul likens it to the way God knows us. I shall know fully even as or similar to the way I have been fully known. God knows me fully. He knows you fully. Right down to the number of hairs on your head. He knows what's in your heart. He knows what we're going to say before we say it. His knowledge is fully accurate. And thorough. And Paul says there will come a day when your knowledge of yourself 
and of God will be like that. It won't be exhaustive because only God will ever know everything. But what you know, you will know accurately. It won't be mixed with the imperfect anymore. It's Revelation 22.4. This day, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It's 1 John 3.2. We know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When is the day of the perfect? It's when we see Jesus face to face and we become like him (laughs) and see him as he is. The perfect is a reference to the return of Christ and the eternal state of glory that follows. That's when we grow up. That's when we're transformed. That's when our minds are renewed so that we see things no longer dimly, but face to face. That's when we have the goal of our life's yearning to be freed from our limitations and enter into a perfect world in perfect bodies to live with our perfect savior and everything that we know and do will be perfect. That's the future that awaits you if you know and trust Jesus as Savior. So when do the spiritual gifts cease? They cease when Jesus comes back and brings his people into the new heaven and earth. They will not cease until then. Therefore, I conclude, the gifts are for today, including the more debated ones like tongues and prophecy because those are the exact gifts that Paul uses as examples to tell us when the perfect comes. Now, I'm persuaded that's what the Bible teaches. I hope you've been able to follow the logic of the passage to that conclusion. However, I know that what I just preached is not convincing to a lot of people. There are Bible-believing Christians who don't agree with that. They believe that some of the gifts have already ceased. Nobody I know says that they've all ceased. Nobody's saying the gift of teaching no longer exists or administration. But there are some that they say have ceased, primarily the ones that would be called maybe miraculous gifts or more demonstrative or spectacular or whatever label you want to put to it. Things like prophecy, Tongues, interpretation of tongues, perhaps immediate healings, signs and wonders. Those are the ones that some would say they ceased. You shouldn't seek that. You shouldn't want that because God has removed it. So I want to adjust the main objections that are raised against the view that all the gifts continue. And I'm going to engage with three of them. One is theological And two are more subjective and personal for people. So here are some objections to the continuation of all the spiritual gifts. The first counter-argument is the theological one, which comes from how some people understand the passage that we just read. The ESV Study Bible summarizes the argument In its footnotes on 1 Corinthians 13, they aren't making this position, but they do describe it. So here's what they say. 
The cessationist view is that miraculous gifts such as prophecy, healing, tongues, interpretation, and miracles were given to authenticate the apostles and their writings in the early years of the church. But those gifts ceased once the entire New Testament was written and the apostles died around 100 AD. So note two things about that position. One, it understands that the purpose of the miraculous gifts is entirely to show the world that the apostles were the real deal. That they had the very authority of the risen Christ to be the the guarantors or guardians of the true gospel. And two, it understands that the perfect is the time when the Bible was completed and the original apostles died. So let me take those assertions one at a time, beginning with the second one that the perfect refers to the completion of Holy Scripture. Years ago, that was probably the main argument that was brought forward against continuation of all the gifts. But that is no longer believed even by most cessationist scholars who write today. I'm going to quote John MacArthur a couple times here because he's a prominent teacher of the cessationist view. And I'm not, I'm not singling him out for criticism. He is a faithful pastor and he's a friend in the gospel. But he represents the cessationist view that I want to engage with here. So here's what he says about what the perfect is in his study Bible, the MacArthur, MacArthur Study Bible. He says, The perfect is not the completion of Scripture. The perfect must be the eternal state. When we in glory see God face to face and have full knowledge in the eternal new heavens and new earth. So even cessationists who are writing today would agree that the perfect is not when the Bible was completed. When scripture was completed, the church did not see Jesus face to face. We do not and still still do not know fully as we are fully known. None of that happened when the scriptures were finished. Even new, even cessationists who write today acknowledge that, that the, the perfect is when Jesus comes. So I think MacArthur is exactly right on that point. The perfect is the eternal state. But if I may be so bold, I think MacArthur is wrong when he says that the first part of the argument is true, namely that the miraculous gifts, in particular the gifts of tongues, were only for the authentication of the early apostles, and therefore they died out with them. Here's how he defends that view in his study Bible. On the one hand, Paul uses a different word for the end of the gift of tongues or languages, thus indicating it will cease by itself as it did at the end of the apostolic age. It will not end by the coming of the perfect, for it will, have, will already have ceased. The uniqueness of the gift of tongues and its interpretation was, as all sign gifts, to authenticate the message and messengers of the gospel before the New Testament was completed. And he uses Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 in defense of that statement. So note the argument here. He says, the gift of tongues ceased by itself before the New Testament was completed. 
And the reason he gives for that cessation is that tongues, like all sign gifts, were uniquely for the purpose of authenticating or proving the truth and authority of the gospel message and its messengers before the scripture was finished in the age of the apostles. And the primary text is Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. Let's look at the text and see if it teaches that. Here's what Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 says. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So let's ask the question, does that text say that the purpose of the miraculous signs and the gift of tongues is to authenticate the message and messengers of the gospel only before the New Testament was completed? Because that's what he's saying happened. No, it does not. It simply says God bore witness with displays of power while people were preaching about a great salvation. Jesus was the first to preach it, accompanied by signs and wonders. Those who heard it preached the same message, and God accompanied that by signs and wonders. There is nothing in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 that says that only happens in the first century, that that's only when we need the authentication, if you will, of the gospel. Nothing in Hebrews 2, 3, and 4 says it was limited to the apostolic era. The idea that the gifts ceased does not come from the scriptures, but from an assumption that the miraculous gifts ceased in the first century. And nowhere in the scriptures does it say that happened. Besides, scripture itself tells us what the gifts of the Spirit are for, including the gifts of tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit. For what? For the authentication of the apostles? No, for the common good. That's why the gifts are given. For the common good. They're given to the church. They're God's gracious gifts to the church for the church's edification and for empowerment for spreading the gospel and building His church. That purpose did not end in the first century. It's our purpose today. God is gracious today. God gives gifts today. All of those gifts. Now, do signs and wonders and gifts of the Holy Spirit add proof to the gospel, that the gospel we preach is true? Absolutely they do. Which is why Paul tells us to earnestly desire them. <laughs> It's about enjoying and promoting the great salvation that Jesus has purchased on the cross. Gifts of grace are for that. They are for today. Now, there are more arguments that are used against this view, but that's the main theological one. And it doesn't hold up to scrutiny. The Bible's on the side of continuation. But I don't think that a theological argument is the real reason that most people are cessationists. 
at least not in my experience, and not back in the day when our church was dividing over it. I saw something else at work. I saw something else that made people reject this openness to the gifts. So let me address two reasons I've seen as to why people don't believe the gifts are for today. The first one is because of bad experiences with charismatic excesses and errors. Bad experiences with charismatic excesses and errors. The term charismatic comes from the Greek word charismata, which is translated as gift five times that Paul uses it in chapter 12. It doesn't at all refer just to the debated gifts like tongues and prophecy, but to any gift of the Spirit, including salvation itself. In Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the charisma of God is eternal life. The free gift of God is eternal life. So every believer is a charismatic, whether you like the term or not. Because you've been endowed with grace from God, a gift that you didn't earn through faith. Salvation is that. Salvation is charismatic. But the word has come to be associated primarily with churches and believers that exercise the gifts of prophecy and tongues. And many people who are cessationists have had or have heard about bad experiences with Corinthian-type churches where the gifts were being misused or even counterfeited. One of the men who was really vocal against us when we were teaching on this stood up in a church meeting. He had about a 10-page document that he read against us to just totally blow away the whole thing. But he began with this story that once upon a time he believed in the gifts of prophecy. And someone had given him a, pro- a prophetic word. His daughter was sick, sick, uh, an infant girl. Was very sick, um, seriously ill. Someone had prophesied that she's going to get better. Um, you don't need to seek medical attention. So he didn't. And she died. I can't think of a worse experience of the charismatic than that. It's no wonder that he was opposed to us teaching on the gift of prophecy. I get it. I totally get that. But I have to say this. We don't develop our theology based on experiences, but based on Scripture. Neither bad experiences nor good experiences should determine what we believe about the gifts or anything else in Scripture. Only Scripture is authoritative. Our experiences are not. What that guy encountered was a misuse, a misunderstanding of prophecy. He did have a bad experience, but he didn't have a biblical experience. I find that for a lot of people who are against the more debated gifts, it's not because the scriptures clearly teach it. It's because they had a bad experience. Here's a second reason that I think many people are cessationists. It's because of fear of what embracing all the gifts might mean. 
for your life personally and for the church corporately. It's fear of what could happen. Because maybe you've seen the fanatical excesses of some TV ministries, or you've been in some churches where things just got out of hand, and you believe intellectually that the gifts are for today, but you might think, oh no, I don't want to become like that. Is that where all this leads? Are we going to have people falling on the floor? Are we going to have people barking like dogs? Are we going to lose our minds and just become all emotional and spontaneous and strange? That's a real fear. And frankly, that's partly why I haven't spent a lot of time teaching about the Holy Spirit. I was telling Mary on a walk this week that I believe in the gifts I want to have one hand open to the Holy Spirit. I want to receive all that God has to give. But I am afraid of where it could lead. I have pictures in my mind of out-of-control charismatic meetings, and I don't want to be responsible for bringing that into the church. Here's what I think needs to be said about that. Fear is never a good reason to do or not do anything. The most repeated command in the Bible over 300 times is do not fear. Faith is what needs to dictate what we do, not fear. And faith is based on who God is and what God has done and what he teaches in his word. And he says in his word that the gifts are for today. Jesus sent them to us by sending us the Spirit. Could it be messy? Sure, but what isn't? Life is messy. Everything about life has a mess. (laughs) But is the benefit worth risking the mess? Yes, it is. Would a little mess be worth it if people got healed physically from things that they couldn't get cured? Would it be worth it if people got freed from depression or made passionate about Jesus Christ and full of joy? Would it be worth it if it made us bold evangelists? Would it be worth it if, if there were conversions? People coming to Christ out of despair. Would it be worth it if it brought revival? I think so. And besides... God says these things are for the common good, for our good. So what really is there to fear? Let's close with application. What do we do with the reality that the gifts are for today? I can't think of a better answer than Paul's command after he defended the continuation of the gifts. He said, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. We're not just to believe that the gifts are for today. We are to want them to be practiced here among us. We are to make room for them to be practiced So over the next several messages, we're going to walk through the spiritual gifts 
paying specific attention to the miraculous ones, to the debated ones, like prophecy and tongues and healing. And we're doing that because if we're going to earnestly desire it, we have to understand it. We have to get beyond our images of craziness to see what is that God is actually doing, what is his intention in these things, and, and be glad and, and receive joy over the fact that God is gracious to do these kinds of things for us. That this is what it looks like to experience grace. So we have faith for it and we earnestly desire what we know is good. So that's, that's what the next several messages are about. But we're also working on a worship night, which will likely happen every month starting September or maybe August if we get going fast enough. I see Spencer smiling. He's in on this. It's a venue where we're going to seek God and intentionally try and grow in the gifts, including prophecy, speaking in tongues with interpretation, word of knowledge, whatever, whatever God wants to give. We don't control what he gives, but he's not likely to give what we don't want and that we're not open to. So since they're for our good, we want to pursue that. So we will have a worship night. Nobody's going to be required to go. It'll be available, though. And I think if the Lord blesses it, you will want to go. That's what we're doing. That's how we're going to apply this. So I hope you'll come back for the next messages. Keep your ears open about the, the worship night. We'll probably explain that at the uh, all-church meeting, which is September 9th. Let me just close with prayer. No, I spent a lot of time defending something here, Lord, sort of a posture of defense, but... Um, really this is about joy, this is about you blessing us, this is about you being among us in ways that we can see and taste and touch. This is about being loved by God. And we thank you that you do that. We thank you that you sent Jesus to, that we might have you with us, favorably, empowering us. Would you give us eyes to see, hearts to, to long for, all that you have, and not be dissuaded by bad examples. Um, create good examples here of what you intended. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.